You're listening ad-free with Wondery Plus. Je constate que dans toutes les opérations de maintien de la paix aujourd'hui en Afrique, il y en a plusieurs. Until very recently, the French Minister of Foreign Affairs was a man named Jean-Yves Le Drian. He had a reputation for being both reserved and competent. A steady hand representing France on the world stage for over a decade. Et au fond, ce qu'est un défi global, c'est-à-dire un problème si urgent et si grave que nous ne pouvons l'ignorer. He's also a pretty recognizable figure, bald with gray hair at the temples and a perpetually furrowed brow. He often wears a pair of square glasses, which he likes to perch on the end of his nose and peer out over. They're usually a conservative black, but sometimes he'll mix in blue ones or even bright purple. He was a history professor before getting into politics, and he still has a professorial air about him. Before Le Drian was Minister of Foreign Affairs, he was France's Minister of Defense, nominated by President Francois Hollande back in 2012. He was more popular than his boss with the public, which credited Le Drian with a successful military operation in Mali. Le Drian oversaw France's counterterrorism operations, including trying to free French citizens kidnapped by terrorists. In 2013, four French journalists working in Syria were captured by ISIS. Les quatre journalistes toujours otages en Syrie. This was just months after four other hostages had been released in Niger. The media raised questions about whether the French government had secretly paid a ransom against its own policy. Le Drian went on TV to assure the public that France would never be extorted by terrorists. La France ne paye pas de rançon. C'est la position du président de la République. Mais vous ne répondez pas à ma question. France does not pay ransom, he said. That's the position of the president. The journalists in Syria were held and tortured by ISIS for 10 months before Le Drian and the French government finally arranged their release. President Hollande greeted them at the airport. Four French journalists held captive in Syria for more than 10 months have returned home. It seemed like a triumph of diplomacy. But then a few days later, a controversial story appeared in the German magazine Focus. The article claimed that the French government had secretly paid for the hostages' release. $18 million. When the story came out, Francois Hollande denied it publicly. This is a very important principle, he said, so that hostage-takers cannot be tempted to kidnap others. But there was one specific detail that framed the story in the public's imagination. Focus reported that the money for the ransom had been carried to Istanbul in cash and handed over to Turkish intelligence to give to ISIS. The man who brought the money? Jean-Yves Le Drian. Just over a year later, in the summer of 2015, French embassies around the world began receiving strange calls. In Morocco, a secretary answered one coming in from the embassy's switchboard. She was startled when the caller introduced himself as France's own Minister of Foreign Affairs. The secretary immediately passed the call to her boss, the ambassador, Charles Fries. When Fries picked up, the minister announced that he urgently needed to reach Morocco's prime minister. He asked Fries for the prime minister's direct number. Fries didn't recognize the voice, so he stalled, telling the minister he'd call him back. As soon as he hung up, Fries put in his own call to the foreign affairs ministry back home. The minister was busy in Vienna, he was told. No one had called to request any phone numbers. In an internal email Fries sent detailing the affair, he added a one-word question at the bottom. Canular? He wondered if it was a hoax. The next day, the French embassy in Angola received a nearly identical call, requesting the number of that country's leader. So too had embassies in Botswana, Russia, and Djibouti. 
As puzzled emails bounced around the ministries of defense and foreign affairs, new countries kept joining the list. In most cases, the embassies found the calls immediately suspicious. It wasn't exactly protocol for the defense minister of France to be calling an embassy's general number, much less asking for the contact info for world leaders. As the stories trickled in, it became clear that something systematic was happening. Estonia, Gabon, Greece, Kuwait, Singapore, Malaysia. The list grew to over 40 countries. The embassies were being targeted with some kind of ruse. But by who? And what did all this have to do with Jean-Yves Le Drian? Jean-Marc Souvira is a screenwriter and the author of several French detective novels with names like The Black Sirens and The Magician. But he was also an actual French detective. Successful enough to rise through the ranks and become a general commissioner of police. The summer the strange embassy calls started, Sevier was the head of a French police division called the OCRGDF. Its name translates more or less as Major Financial Crimes Office. When Sevier had first been offered the job back in 2010, he didn't know much about investigating fraud. He'd come up in organized crime, chasing hardened criminals and drug traffickers. But his boss told him that this was just what they needed. They wanted Severa to take the methods he'd use for mafia prosecutions and apply them to fraudsters and money launderers. Between 2011 and 2014, there were 700 president scam attacks reported against companies like Nestle and Michelin and Porsche. The phenomenon has grown so much because we're dealing with major fraud professionals, Severa told a French magazine. It's their job. They do it all day. And they use very sophisticated techniques. He was nearing the end of his five-year term when reports of the embassy calls were routed to his office. The embassy people were confused, he said, about the calls they were getting from Jean-Yves Le Drian. Immediately, they knew this was some kind of fraud. Whatever the goal of it was, the OCRGDF needed to react quickly. What they had on their hands was not just a criminal issue, he said, but a political and diplomatic one. Whoever was doing this could discredit the ministers, and who knew what else? For Suvira, the question of who was responsible was a rhetorical one. He told me, as soon as we heard someone was pretending to be Le Drian, we knew who he was. We immediately thought, well, that's Shikli. Wondery, Pineapple Street Studios, and Amazon Music. I'm Evan Ratliff, and this is Persona. Episode 4, The Tiger Dossier. What was the Ladrian imposter after, collecting phone numbers of world leaders? 
The first clue arrived a few weeks later, in the form of a message to the French embassy in Tunisia. This message was real, though, from the actual defense minister of Tunisia. The Tunisians were checking in on an arms deal they'd been negotiating, or thought they'd been negotiating, with Jean-Yves Le Drian. Over the previous two weeks, Tunisia's defense minister had received a series of calls and emails from Le Drian, as well as from France's Minister of Foreign Affairs. They had reached out to discuss a possible sale of helicopters to the Tunisians. In several back-and-forths, the French ministers offered to arrange a secret sale of four Tigre or Tiger EC-665 attack helicopters, made by the European defense contractor Airbus. The ministers sent documents supporting the sale, including a memorandum of understanding on Airbus letterhead, confirming the transaction. The price? 19.5 million euros. The deal would need to be conducted with the utmost discretion, they told the Tunisians. France would, quote, send you a bank account routing number with an offshore company in order to maintain state secrecy. In the emails I've seen, the Tunisian defense minister seemed enthusiastic about the deal. He thanks Le Drian for wanting to help Tunisia's military and asked the French to send a delegation to close the deal. But somewhere, a doubt crept in. The Tunisian minister then put in a call to the French ambassador, asking about the deal. But this was all news to the ambassador. He didn't know about any helicopter sales. A flurry of messages wound through French diplomatic channels. This does not mean anything to anyone here, one staffer replied. Especially since the minister never sends emails. There was no helicopter deal, of course. The signatures looked real, but the letters were forgeries. When we contacted this now former Tunisian defense minister recently, he said he wasn't authorized to discuss any details. He would only say that he'd, quote, played an essential role in unmasking and foiling this attempt to defraud our country. We're very proud of it. Soon similar reports started arriving from other countries. In late July, the Ladrion imposter reached the president of Gabon, Ali Bongo, proposing a similar secret arms deal. Bongo reportedly became suspicious when Ladrion addressed him as vous, the formal French term for you. But Bongo knew Ladrion. He should have used the more casual too. There were more. The Central African Republic, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Mozambique, Togo. The fraudsters tried them all. C'est incroyable. Incroyable. Even Jean-Marc Suvira, head of the OCRGDF, had to admit it was incredible. Et donc, il a téléphoné comme ça... Euh à des chefs d'État africains, à des ambassadeurs, etc. Quoi. Donc, bon. They'd first scammed the embassies out of private contact information for their targets. Then they'd called heads of state to con them out of millions. In France, the scam would become known as Affaire de faux Drian, the faux Drian affair. But Suvira's cops named the case after the helicopters that the fake minister was peddling. They called it Le Dossier Tigre, the Tiger Dossier. At this point... You might be wondering how I know all this. Private communications between French diplomats. Reports from inside the French police. Well, the thing about the Tiger dossier is it's a literal dossier, a case file. It includes all the evidence the French police gathered. A sprawling international investigation that covered 40 countries, five years, and involved the wealthiest and most powerful French-speaking people in the world. Some of the most powerful people in the world, period. The dossier holds pretty much every lead the French police followed, every interrogation they conducted, every phone number and website they traced, every wiretap they put on, every email address they subpoenaed. And this trove of documents? We actually have a copy of it. It's sitting right in front of me, on my screen, 
a cascade of little folders. Even today, 18 months after first getting my hands on it, I sometimes just can't believe I have all these wildly detailed documents at my fingertips. In the years I've reported on criminal underworlds, I've never come close to getting such a complete record of an investigation this big. To give you a little context, I was once riding in a van with a police officer in the Philippines, headed to look at a crime scene where a murder had taken place. The officer turned and just handed me their file on the case, let me take pictures of it with my phone. It was one of the most dramatic reporting moments I've ever had. That file was a couple dozen pages. The Tiger dossier contains 2,264 documents, some of them hundreds of pages long. Conservatively, we're talking about more than 20,000 pages worth of evidence. It took five of us more than eight months just to go through it all. I can't tell you who gave it to us, but I will say this. The person did it casually. As in, here you go, you'd probably be interested in this. Yes, we were interested in this. The Tiger dossier is a roadmap to an extraordinary story of an extraordinary scam. It contains everything the investigators discovered. And if you look deep enough for long enough, it reveals some things that they missed. Police have now confirmed at least four attacks in the city of Paris. November 13th, 2015. The most devastating terrorist attack in French history. More than 120 people killed. A sophisticated and coordinated attack. An ongoing hostage situation at the Bataclan Concert Hall. Horrifying situation and an indication of the vulnerabilities of a free and open society. These are soft targets, restaurants. ISIS-affiliated cells assaulted six locations in and around Paris. They set off a bomb outside the Stade de France, the national stadium, which was hosting a football match between France and Germany. The French president was in attendance. The deadliest attack took place at the Bataclan Theater, where the American band Eagles of Death Metal were playing to a full house. Three terrorists burst into the concert and opened fire on the crowd, killing 90 people and injuring hundreds of others. The attack shocked the world. The mixture of fear and trauma was palpable. In the Tiger dossier, this is the moment where everything changes, when the modus operandi of the scammers shifts. The reality was, up until this point, no one had fallen for it. At least, no one the French police ever knew about. And perhaps, no one ever would have fallen for it. But now, things felt different in France. The threat was everywhere. And the scammers took advantage of the new atmosphere to adapt the story they were telling. The fear of terrorism was at the top. Delphine Maillet is an attorney in Paris. She represented Johnny Ledrian in the case involving his imposters. We were just after the Bataclan. Mm. And you know, we were really afraid of terrorism. That was a big psychological point for the crook to find this way. Ils ont trouvé vraiment une faille psychologique. The crooks found a psychological flaw, she said, a fear they could exploit. And what better way to exploit it than through her client, the defense minister, the man on TV who kept talking about terrorists? All they had to do now was go find the perfect targets. So I think that is a mode that encounters that way. 
No, because it is on an that's island, the right? That, oh, that's the castle. The town of Chantilly is about an hour outside of Paris by train. It's the birthplace of both Chantilly cream and Chantilly lace. Really, you'd be hard-pressed to find many places that birth two more opulent creations. It's also the home of the Chateau de Chantilly, an extravagant castle estate dating to the Middle Ages. The chateau served as home to a succession of French royals from the Bourbon and Condé families. Perhaps not surprisingly, when such displays of wealth went out of fashion during the French Revolution, it was used as a prison and then reduced to rubble. These days, the rebuilt castle grounds include the nearby Great Stables, which are themselves an 18th century architectural masterpiece. They're 600 feet long, with massive arched stone ceilings, dramatic cornices, a grand dome. To the unrefined eyes of three reporters from the U.S., the stables were easily mistaken for the chateau itself. Do you think it happened a lot to the royal who lived here that people would come for a dinner party and they'd be like, we're here, you're at the stables. No, no, do you see me waving? No, I don't see you. (laughs) The castle is nice too, with halls of priceless paintings by the likes of Raphael and Botticelli, and the exact place settings and menus from 19th century dinner parties. But all that aside, we're here because of a man who never actually lived in the castle, but paid to restore it. See, over the 20th century, the chateau had fallen into disrepair. But in 2005, a local billionaire stepped up to save it, committing 40 million euros to the restoration of the chateau, the stables, and the adjacent horse track. His name is Prince Karim Aga Khan, or more commonly just, His Highness, the Aga Khan. Your Highness, if a complete stranger who had no idea who you were or what you were, came up to you and said, what do you do for a living? What would be your reply? I would say that my role is uh, I'm the imam, the hereditary imam of a Shia Muslim community, an international Shia Muslim community. He is, to be precise, Aga Khan IV, the 49th hereditary imam, spiritual leader to the Ismaili, a Shia Muslim community with an estimated 15 to 20 million followers around the world. His grandfather, Aga Khan III, tapped him as successor while he was still a student at Harvard in 1957. Karim's father, a Pakistani diplomat married to the actress Rita Hayworth, was passed over. So the young Aga Khan IV was a curiosity in the press from the beginning. The decision came as as a shock. Uh, You had no idea before. You know, my grandfather was very much a Muslim family head. He didn't discuss his decisions, as far as I know, with the family members. In the decades since, he's become known around the globe as a humanitarian through his Aga Khan Development Network. The Aga Khan Development Network is one of the largest private development organizations in the world. I think they employ 80,000 people or something like that. Michael Igo is a senior reporter for DevEx, a publication covering international development and global health. He also worked with the Aga Khan Development Network. He focused on climate change projects in Kyrgyzstan, where the Aga Khan was also funding a new university. I think their budget is like $900 million a year, which makes them large, but not as big as the Gates Foundation. They run a staggering number of development programs, everything from agriculture to education to housing to health. And they don't just show up and leave. They'll invest in communities for years. The Aga Khan does not like to be 
described as a philanthropist and sort of takes issue with what he sees as a Western view of philanthropy, which is, you know, a wealthy person fulfilling a moral obligation to help those less fortunate. For the Aga Khan, this work is actually the manifestation of his faith and his belief system. He's long held the ear of world leaders, especially leaders in countries with big populations of Ismailis, like Canada or Pakistan. The Aga Khan is esteemed enough figure that he's able to coordinate with government leaders at the highest levels. Hmm. He can get the meetings that he needs to get. He's also one of the richest men in the world. He owns a $200 million yacht, an island in the Bahamas, a couple of private jets. He wasn't born in France, but he's a hardcore Francophile. That's one reason he established his residence in Chantilly and offered up 40 million euros to restore its chateau and stables. The other reason is his love of horse racing. He owns hundreds of thoroughbreds and built a museum dedicated to horses at the stables. It's an exciting project. Uh, I think it'll be one of the few museums totally dedicated to the horse. The Aga Khan has sat for interviews before, like this one on CNN, but not often or at least infrequently enough that each one trumpets itself as a rare interview with the elusive Aga Khan. He didn't want to speak with us, which is understandable, I suppose, because I wanted to talk with him about the hundreds of pages in the Tiger dossier devoted to His Highness getting scammed. Hello? Oui, bonjour, son Maltese, comment allez-vous? Oui, bonjour. The first call came on the morning of March 1st, 2016, a few months after the Bataclan Theater massacre. A Monsieur Mallet, Ladrian's advisor, reached the Aga Khan's personal secretary. The minister would like to speak to His Highness about a confidential matter on a private line. This is the Aga Khan talking to the scammers on wiretap recordings made by the French police. Posing as either Ladrian or his advisor Mallet, the scammers inform the Aga Khan of some important news not yet made public. Two French citizens had again been taken hostage by ISIS in Syria. The French government's public stance, of course, was that they would never pay ransom to hostage takers. However, the imposters said, they did do it privately, discreetly, to save the lives of French citizens. That's what they were going to do with these hostages. And that's why Ladrian was turning to the Aga Khan and others like him, to raise the money out of the public eye. The money would be transferred quietly from private citizens to offshore companies controlled by the Ministry of Defense. And then the Bank of France would reimburse the Aga Khan for his trouble. His Highness could save the hostages' lives, and it wouldn't cost him a penny in the end. The fake Ladrian had selected an ideal mark. His Highness had devoted much of his wealth and time to easing suffering. He'd lamented the negative views of Islam in the West. He'd also had a close relationship with the French government for years. Whatever the ultimate mixture of motivations, the Aga Khan was hooked. Oui, tout à fait. 
On March 4th, after calls and emails back and forth with the faux Ladrian and representatives from his office, His Highness's personal secretary ordered a transfer of 5.8 million euros, about $6 million at the time. As discussed on the phone, she wrote to a banker in Geneva, here are the contact details to be scrupulously respected as written. Please send me an immediate acknowledgement of the payment in return. Thanks for your help. Have a great day. The imposter's instructions listed a Hong Kong company with an account at China Merchants Bank in Shenzhen. They were on Defense Ministry letterhead, stamped confidential, and signed by Le Drian. Hello, hello. I know you're very busy today, so I'm calling you because I have to send the funds back to you. So I wanted to know how much we had to send you back exactly. That's someone pretending to be one of Ladrian's assistants, asking the Aga Khan how much he's successfully transferred so far, so the government can know how much they need to reimburse. Wait, I, I don't have the numbers. I wasn't ready for that question. How much did you? How much did you draw? Well, there were 5.8, that's for sure. 5.8, yes. That's China. For China. Ultimately, His Highness would transfer 18 million euros to the scammers, or $20 million, over four transfers. The transfers went to different bank accounts in China and Poland. The Tiger dossier documents each one in painstaking detail. At one point, the Aga Khan delegates the task to an underling in London. When the underling asks the scammers too many questions, they insist on dealing directly with His Highness. The whole thing would take less than 10 days. A fifth transfer to Poland for 1.6 million euros had been scheduled for March 10th. But the Aga Khan's right-hand man suspected something was amiss and stopped the transfer before it went out. The right-hand man contacted the French authorities. A report was quickly passed on to the OCRGDF, the anti-fraud division of the French National Police in Paris. The agency's Tiger dossier had been open for eight months, and now they had the first real victim. The police quickly got permission to tap a new mobile phone the Aga Khan obtained, solely to talk to the fake Ladrion. He was still calling. If the police were lucky, they might hear something that would help identify the scammer. The calls revolved around money that seemed to be held up in transit, 8 million euros. The con men, with increasing urgency, were pressing the Aga Khan to help get it released. The tapes are remarkable to listen to. The scammers, already having made off with millions of dollars, are trying to figure out how to get the rest. They know His Highness is very busy, but could he get them more info on the transactions? Well, listen, I checked. From our side, we didn't give any instructions about blocking the transfers, so I think there was an incident between the banks. But we are not the source of this. Very well. Could you have a document showing this, that this payment has indeed gone through, that there was absolutely no blocking? This is very important in order to send the funds back to you. The Aga Khan, a spiritual leader and one of the wealthiest people on earth, has already lost millions. Now he's playing the role of a patient, slightly befuddled customer service representative. 
Then a question, Your Highness. Why did you block just Dubai and not the rest of them? Uh, I'll have to ask about that because, well, honestly, I don't know the answer. Okay, you don't actually understand why it was blocked in Dubai. Well, if it was going to be blocked, it should have been blocked everywhere. Exactly. Exactly. That's why we didn't quite understand the situation. Well, look, it's not a big deal. But it's just a pity that we stopped. I mean, in relation to the elaboration of this mission. This mission, saving the lives of the hostages, just a reminder of what's at stake. Well, listen, I found a solution. Perhaps it would be better if you contacted the banker directly to send him the funds and to find out what's going on. I think that would be much simpler. What do you want? The banker's number, his name. And then, just as suddenly as the calls began, they end. Presumably, the scammers began to suspect that they were the ones being played, that the police were likely listening in that it wasn't worth the risk to get more money out of His Highness. Time to move on. The Aga Khan's phone may have quit ringing, but the scammers were just getting started. CEOs of multinational conglomerates, royals, scions of old French money, art dealers and champagne magnates, the heads of major nonprofits and charitable foundations, one of the richest men in Turkey, even the manager of the French national football team. They're all there in the Tiger dossier, over 150 of them. And those are just the ones that reported the contacts to the police. There were certainly others, Suvira, the investigator, told me. Because admitting you'd been a target of the scam, even if you didn't fall for it, could impact your credibility. How did Monsieur Le Drian first find out that this was happening? And what was his reaction, if you know, to, to finding that out? He was upset. He was really shocked that someone could use French lives, real people around the world, qui uh, risquaient la mort. This is Delphine Meillet again, the lawyer who represented Jean-Yves Le Drian. Le Drian was upset, she told me, shocked, that someone could exploit the lives of real French hostages. People who'd risk death. Il était très choqué de cette manipulation psychologique qu'on puisse utiliser. Shocked by the psychological manipulation, using French diplomatic channels and the image of France for money. But it showed that the scammers had no limits, she said. No limits and an overflowing imagination. The question was how to stop it. The clues were sparse but familiar. Phone numbers and IP addresses which seemed to trace back to Israel bank accounts attached to shell companies in Hong Kong, China, and elsewhere. It would take years for the police to slowly trace those threads back to their suspect. Et qui est capable de faire ce type d'escroquerie? Il y a pas 50 personnes. Ils sont moins d'une dizaine. There are fewer than a dozen people in the world capable of it, Suvira said. But in his mind, it wasn't even a dozen. All those threads would lead to only one possible place. Did you have a sense of why they first identified Gilbert Chicli as the suspect? Oui, à cause de sa voix. Yes, it was his voice. Tout de suite, leur réaction a été de dire, c'est du Chicli. Even without any proof, the brand of Khan was unmistakable. It could only be Chicli. Mais ils ont reconnu la marque Chicli. Is there any sense in which 
identifying a suspect based on the modus operandi of the case could cause the case to go in a direction that you get uh, what we would call tunnel vision. Alors là, on peut dire que euh, ils auraient peut-être pu chercher ailleurs, mais ils n'ont pas eu besoin puisqu'ils ont reconnu. They might have looked elsewhere, she said, but they didn't need to. Everything pointed to Shikley, and they all knew it. But if the police wanted to bring Shikley to justice, they would need more than just a hunch and some phone numbers. And while they were searching, he was still out there, and he was only getting more ambitious. It's very strange, but one day, I take lunch with my wife, and uh, the phone ring, and my wife answered, and she come back, and she said to me, it's the secretary of the Minister of uh, Le Drian who wants to speak with you. Guy Petrus Lignac is the owner of a winery near Bordeaux. He's from one of the most famous winemaking families in France. And I said, no problem. Uh, yes, uh, I don't know what he wants, but uh, I speak with him. Not a problem for me. The secretary uh, called me uh, five minutes later and he said, uh, the minister wants to speak with Skype with you because it's very private. Jean-Yves Le Drian wanted to speak to him, but not on the phone. He wanted to talk on Skype, with video. It would be more secure, he said, and it was important that Lignac see him so he could fully appreciate the urgency of the matter he wanted to discuss. Fifteen minutes after, I, uh, I answer, and I see uh, a desk with the flag of France, the flag of Europe, and uh, the Minister of Le Drian. When I spoke to Gilbert Shikli's son, Shai, in Israel, he told me that if you wanted to know why people thought his father was a genius, you just give him a phone. You'll see. Shikli's scams had always been about a specific kind of impersonation, with a voice. But now, for the first time, the scammer was showing his face. Or at least, someone's face. That's next time on Persona. Yes, that's the Mission Impossible way that they scan the character and then produce the mask. Rusty makes highly detailed, high-end masks, the kind often used in the movie. When they approach to us, they are shocked by the time that we need to make one. Persona is an original series from Wondery, Pineapple Street Studios, and Amazon Music. The show is written and hosted by me, Evan Ratliff. Our senior producer is Henry Malofsky. Our producer is Sophie Bridges. Our associate producer is Chris Knapp. Production assistance from Natalie Pert. Project management by Courtney Harrell. Joel Lovell is our editor. Additional reporting by Amira Karoud in Tunisia. Aaron Ross in Jadiba in Senegal. Judicael Yongo in the Central African Republic. Jiro Wilfred Ovengom in Gabon and David Iverson, all over. Translation by Leela Badranath. Fact-checking by Adeline Sear and Danya Suleiman. Mixing by Hannes Brown. Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Original music by Carla Kilstead and Jeremy Flower. Additional percussion by Matthias Bossi. Our artwork is by Kiyomi Morrison. Music licensing by Dan Kanishkui. Production legal provided by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers and Fair Use Council provided by Katie Ali Mohammadi Crown at Donaldson Califf. Thanks to Michael Igo, who I should note was speaking in his personal capacity, not for his employer. 
Special thanks to Tristan Redman and Nathan Lippi. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. From Amazon Music and Wondery, our producers are Eliza Mills and Stephanie Wachneen, and our managing producer is Candice Manriquez-Ren. The executive producers at Amazon Music and Wondery are Morgan Jones, Marshall Louie, and Aaron O'Flaherty. Thank you.